The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Angela Duckworth, co-founder and CEO of Character Lab, a nonprofit that uses psychological science to help children thrive. She's also the Christopher Brown Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and serves a number of other roles there. In 2013, she was named a MacArthur Fellow, and she's advised the White House, the World Bank, NBA and NFL teams, and Fortune 500 CEOs. Prior to her career in research, Angela founded a summer school for low-income children that was profiled as a Harvard Kennedy School case study and in 2018 celebrated its 25th anniversary. She's been a McKinsey management consultant and a math and science teacher at public schools in New York City, San Francisco, and Philadelphia. Angela's education includes an undergraduate degree in neurobiology at Harvard, a Master of Science with Distinction in Neuroscience from Oxford, and a PhD in Psychology as a National Science Foundation Graduate Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. Her TED Talk, which I'll include a link to in the show notes, is among the most viewed of all time. And her book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, is a number one New York Times bestseller. Angela, you have been busy. Welcome and thank you for sparing some of your valuable time with us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be talking to you. Your academic record indicates a longstanding history in neuroscience. Uh, Do you have a sense of, of where that interest originated? You know, I have been a um, eager student of human nature, I guess, since I was um, a kid. And when I was 16 years old, I had saved up all of my nickels and dimes, and I had finally enough money to do something over the summer. My parents didn't believe in paying for things that uh, their kids, I guess, could have saved for themselves. So when I had the choice of what classes to take in a summer school, um, right before my I guess, senior year, uh, maybe it was my junior year, I chose psychology as, um, as a class that, you know, with all my hard-earned money, I would just go and pay for it myself. So I think um, more broadly, even than neuroscience, I'm just interested in why people do what they do, why we believe what we believe, and sometimes why we don't always do the things that we believe are the best for us. And when did that work gain more focus upon this this field of character and um, sort of the larger field of positive psychology for you? When I was still in graduate school, maybe toward the very end, and, and keep in mind, I was an older student, so I had taught for several years. I had run a nonprofit for um, for kids, a summer school for lower income children. So when I got to graduate school, I was 32, not 22. Um, and I, um, you know, at that uh, stage in my life was, you know, interested in figuring out all the things that I was not a not a very successful teacher at doing, like motivating my students to work hard. Like I wanted to understand that scientifically so that I could be more helpful. And I met a couple of educators just at that point in my training, just at the end of my graduate work. Their names were Dave Levin and Dominic Randolph. And they had been working in two different parts of the socioeconomic spectrum. So Dominic was the headmaster of a extremely wonderful but high tuition 
private school in New York, and Dave was a charter school leader serving 100% free and reduced price lunch kids. And I think what we all came to was the understanding that character, which Aristotle talked about as, you know, everything we do that is good for others and good for ourselves, and that's, that's a universal, it doesn't matter where you are in the socioeconomic spectrum, it doesn't matter where you are in the lifespan. So the interest in character development and specifically my interest in motivation and, and grit and self-control all kind of came together um, at that point. And I, I've been you know, mostly working in schools with kids ever since. And that's actually part of what really intrigues me about your work, uh, what you just described in that you went to graduate school a little bit later. So you have this really valuable combination of experiences. On the one hand, you have this impressive record of academic study and research in neuroscience and psychology. And then on the other hand, you have this direct experience that likely gives you an important context for thinking about the implications of research and education. How do you see those two working together in your life's work? You know, I, I think at one point I thought like, oh, wow, this is terrific to be doing work at the intersection of psychological science and K-12 education. And my, my assumption was that there's so much that K-12 education had to learn from psychological science. And in a way, that was just my own journey. Like I'd started off as a teacher and then I wanted to know what science could bring into education. But I have since learned that it's absolutely a two-way street and that there's just as much creativity and insight um, that can flow the opposite direction. In other words, scientists who study goals or um, motivation or gratitude or curiosity and all the things that I, I think Aristotle meant when he, he said character, I think there's just as much insight that can flow from the people who are working with, with students and young people all day long to the scientists who study these things for a living. And I think some of my most... Um, I don't know, I guess enjoyable collaboration have actually been um, with educators, you know, people who are still in the classroom and we get on the phone and we talk about something that I've been reading about, but they've actually been doing. Yeah. You, you know, I had a conversation recently with Tom Vander Ark and another guest on the show, mm -hmm. and and we ended up getting into this conversation because of his work with the Gates Foundation and the types of initiatives that they'd funded. And he was uh, having this really kind of pensive moment in the interview about how a lot of their work did end up connecting to these these very um, these very almost simplistic measures. Um, outcomes. Mm. And I'm especially mm. interested in getting to the point in our conversation today where we can focus upon the concept of measurement as it relates to character, because I'm incredibly convinced that measurement is often the tail that wags ed educational policy and educational reform <laughs> dog. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good way to put it. But I think we might need to build a little more context for the audience. So I'm wondering if you can um, take us on, on a little brief tour of your work in the character lab and the focus and the goal of that research. So Character Lab is a 501c3 nonprofit that I started with those two educators that I named, Dave Levin and, and Dominic Randolph. Now I think we're on like the eighth year um, and counting. And the mission of Character Lab is to advance scientific insights that help kids thrive. Part of that is about measurement. I and mean, what we really do all day long is find ways to help scientists um, collaborate with educators and to um, work with those educators and actually conduct new scientific research. So, you know, people that your listenership might know, like Carol Black, and then maybe some scientists that they haven't heard of because they're not yet working with educators, but that's part of our mission is to get more and more of the best scientists in the world to be working um, on school-age kids. 
uh, problems and challenges and opportunities. So that's what Character Lab is. Now you might ask the question like, well, so tell me about measurement. Um, I think that it's true that for anybody to study and do anything helpful, you know, you have to have some way of measuring uh, what you're doing. I mean, even if you're trying to study something like gratitude, which you would think like, oh, do we have to measure it? Well, like, yeah, I mean, if you have a, an intervention that is supposed to help feel more grateful, you have to do whether it worked or not. Um, so I spent actually my entire research career, as any scientist does, you know, struggling with questions of measurement. And when it comes to character, um, and I don't know that Aristotle could have foreseen this, um, but I, I do think that character strengths like grit or gratitude are measurable. But what I what I want to add to that, and then you know we can go wherever you want in this conversation, is that um, none of our measures are perfect, and they're they're deeply imperfect in their own ways. And I think appreciating their imperfections is uh, really important to, so that we can measure things responsibly and not think that we're measuring A when we're really measuring B, for example. Yeah, um, and and we'll get into measurement a little bit more, I think, as as we go along. Just talking about the character lab a bit more, it seems like there's a lot happening there. Uh, as you look at it, maybe I'm not asking you to be objective, I'm asking your kind of subjective opinion. <laughs> what are the most exciting possibilities that you're seeing emerging from that work so far? So one of the really exciting things that we're learning um, as we get more scientists involved, I mean, the whole theory of change of Character Lab is that there are many scientists, you know, many behavioral scientists that include psychologists, but also, you know, economists and neuroscientists, sociologists, like anybody who studies human behavior, who deeply, you know, intrinsically care about young people, but it's just so hard. Anybody um, who's tried to work with a, you know, population of, you know, 16 year olds, it's like, how do you get to them? Well, they're in school all day. And like, how do I reach all their parents and consent all the parents? I mean, these are practical barriers and character labs theory of changes that if you can um, reduce some of those barriers, you'll just have an influx of, of, um, you know, wonderful scientific minds working on kids. So one of the things that we're discovering is that, you know, kids actually have a lot of wisdom them, themselves. So one of the first publications that came out of Character Lab was um, was run by it was, a, it was a study that was conducted by a, a scientist named Lauren S. Chris Winkler, and she had the idea that teenagers actually know a lot of the things that they ought to do, um, and that they're not doing them. But we shouldn't go and lecture them, like you know, here's how not to procrastinate, here's how to stay off your cell phone, like here's what to do after you get a disappointing grade, because they already know the things that we're about to say. Um, and instead, they're having a problem with actually accessing that wisdom and using it to motivate themselves. So she designed a study where for, uh, I think it was only seven or eight minutes is how long the activity lasted. She asked teenagers to answer some questions on behalf of other students. So do you have advice for other students who are maybe a little younger than you, but not much, about how to not procrastinate, how to get off your phone, how to you know, deal with, you know, social media. And what she found was that that very brief intervention or that turned the tables, that didn't tell the students anything, but in fact elicited their advice for others, ended up improving academic performance across the board for girls and boys, for ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th graders, for students who were getting A's and for students who were failing classes. I mean, it just helped everyone. And I think the insight was that, uh, young people actually know more than we think they know and maybe what they need help with is accessing what they know as opposed to just shoving more knowledge into their heads yeah 
Well, and, and obviously there's an intuitive sense to that. I, I used to talk to audiences about this, this concept, and uh, it's not true today, but if we go back 15 years, you would drive by a hospital and you would see all of these m- medical workers um, on cigarette breaks right outside. <laughs> and these are the people who, you know, theoretically would know the most about the negative impact of cigarettes. And yet the behavior hadn't quite changed yet. So looking for ways right. in which those, those connect, um, that makes a lot of sense. Well, as I mentioned before, an education measurement often seems to be the, that tail that wags the educational dog. And, and what we measure tends to focus our efforts and shape our system. At least if it lets us assume that's true for a moment. So presently, we have yeah. many measures that are related to what we might describe as declarative or procedural knowledge, especially in areas of math and language arts, um, and a heavy focus um, on those areas when it comes to measurement. Uh, that seems evident in uh, what gets funded and professional development and so much more. Um, but it seems as if there's a growing collective of researchers like yourself. Um, and this collective is highlighting the importance of character. Um, where are we when it comes to measurement? Uh, assuming if, that measurement is the tail that wags the dog and we're not going to be able to change that, how far are we in the research when it comes to measuring things like grit? Most of the measures of um, you know, what, what we call character, but also I think by many educators it's called social-emotional learning. And I think um, you know, the way we're using the word character and the way you know, other educators would use SEL, um, you can use them synonymously. So where are we with measurement of these capabilities? I would say that almost all of the measures that are available are self-report questionnaires. In other words, you know, if you want to know how grateful someone is, you ask them questions like, you know, when's the last time you thanked somebody? Like how often do you feel appreciative of what other people do for you? Now, one thing I can tell you about self-report questionnaires is that they're very reliable and they're pretty predictive. In other words, it's not like a random number generator. You know, it's not that these self-report questionnaires are flawed in the sense that they're not really picking up anything that has to do with what you're trying to measure. But they have other problems, including um, fakeability and um, social desirability. Social desirability is um, when you answer in a way that you think will look good to others or even to yourself, right? I mean, nobody wants to say that, you know, like they're an ungrateful person. (laughs) Um, So I think these end up being, you know, that's the tail, right? If the tail is like a questionnaire that is, you know, at the end of the day, something you could get any score you wanted to um, in a pretty, you know, straightforward way, and that you have some human motivation to you know, look good on, then you do have to ask the question that if it's a tail that's being used for lagging an accountability dog, for example, you know, you might actually create more problems than, than you're solving by introducing that measure. So I always like to ask educators, you know, I know you care about measurement, um, but I want to know a little bit more about what problem you're solving for. You know, are you solving for accountability? Um, Are you solving for, you know, individual diagnosis and counseling? Uh, Are you solving for formative assessment, right, just to give feedback to the student for their own benefit in a low stakes um, way? I think that might help you get to the right tail so that the dog is, you know, being wagged in the right way. Yeah, and and uh, just to challenge my assumption here that measurement is, is sort of in this place of of power, um, as you've seen some of this work start to be translated into schools and classrooms, what seems to be the most effective um, path toward adoption 
Like what, what seems to lead people to really embrace this and begin to change practices and adapt policies in a school in order to be thinking more in terms of character or socio-emotional well, development? I will, I will reveal my own, I mean, you know, I don't walk around or, you know, fly around, I guess the country trying to get more people to use measures sure. um, in part because I see their flaws and also because, you know, say for example, you had a perfect thermometer for grit. Right. You could know with precision exactly how much passion and perseverance, you know, a student had, the classroom had, the school had. And imagine that it wasn't fakeable and it wasn't biased. It just was true. But still, if you were the principal of school and you got a diagnosis that, you know, you were lacking at a school in passion and perseverance, like, well, I think what many educators would say, like, well, what am I supposed to do about that? Right. And I right. think that's where most of the work needs to happen, which are, you know, ways that are based on solid research that we can create conditions that cultivate character. And I, I myself would say that if I were that school principal and I were given a diagnosis that, you know, grit was low in my school, even knowing everything I know about grit, I don't have a straightforward answer to what I would do differently. And I think that means that there needs to be more work done. And also, I think we're going to alienate educators if we you know, tell them like, oh, you know, in addition to everything else that you weren't doing well, you're not doing this well, raise those scores when we're not telling them how, um, you know, how they might do that. Yeah. And that actually leads directly to the next question I had in mind, which is what's the status of the research when it comes to actually teaching or creating an environment where, uh, where the conditions are such where th these traits are growing and developing something like grit? I mean, I think we're really at the beginning of the beginning, and I, I have two um, uh, two things to say about that. One is, I think, as every educator knows um, intuitively, uh, and I agree with, you know, this is less about kind of formal curriculum. It's not like we need like to replace seventh grade, uh, you know, the sixth period with this like curriculum, and that's where kids are going to learn character. So much of character development is modeling um, and culture, and you know, the, like many many small things that collectively help a, a young person grow up to, you know, have beliefs and, and, and habits that are helpful and adaptive. So not like calculus class. It's not like we have to just like add a course to the curriculum per se. So I, I really believe that. Now that makes it messier. That makes it uh, a bigger investment. It's a little less straightforward than like downloading uh, an app or you know, installing a curriculum that you didn't have before. So I, I really believe that that's true. Um, I just think we should still have more uh, science-based advice for those parents and educators who want to model, you know, effectively and who want to create structures that make it easier, not harder to display character. So that's one thing I'll say. The second thing is that all that said, I still think there's some place in some schools for some formal curriculum. Not to say that this is everything that needs to get done, but it can be a helpful supplement. You know, there's a study that I love that was done recently where young children are watching an adult struggle with a toy and the adult struggles and struggles. And then in some conditions of this randomly assigned experiment, you know, the adult struggles finally gets the toy to work. And then all the while is saying things like, oh, it's really important that I not give up. Like, um, this is really hard, but sometimes when things are hard, you know, I'm still making progress. 
And in other words, there was this explicit kind of formal instruction when it came to the perseverance, but also there was modeling. And the question is, do those formal, explicit reinforcements of character, do they add any value or is it all in their observation of what the adults do? And what the experiment found definitively is that there is a massive amount of value to the adult in addition to modeling, expressing more formally, like this is the, you know, this is what you do when things are hard, you, you try another way. So I think for schools, the implications are that you hope that you have teachers and other staff who are embodying gratitude and creativity, humility, uh, empathy, emotional intelligence, and so on. And the students will learn a lot by watching those adults in, in their midst every day. But I think in addition to that, um, the, the adult saying things, you know, um, what you did there was, it, that's gratitude. And I really like appreciate that. Like, let's all take a moment just to talk about how important it is to thank each other. So I, I believe that, that we have a lot of work to do, but I also think that some of the intuitions of educators, which are that we have to start with modeling and, and maybe back it up with some explicit formal instruction, I think those are the right intuitions. Now, something that you just said took me a totally different direction. Um, this is this is the nature of the you know the reality that we we speak at 150 words a minute and listen at 400 and yeah. think at 900 or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I was listening, but I found myself sort of meandering into this other line of thinking, which is uh, there's this whole kind of body literature around. Um, I don't know if you would use this this language, but these kinds of interventions, like positive psychology interventions, that relate to these different mm-hmm. traits. And um, and what I really value about that is is how applied it is. It's it's a actual practice that someone can try. It's grounded in in research. There's data to suggest that those who engage in this regularly have some kind of favorable positive outcome. Um, but then there's this other movement that's happening kind of outside the world of researchers, the life hacking movement, <laughs> where mm, are, there yeah, are people who are, your life exactly, and there are these people kind of doing the same things. They may not have the background in research, but they're creating and conducting these sorts of life experiments. And um, they're doing gratitude experiments or experiments to connect with people from their past or savoring experiments. Or, so they're doing this kind of work. I'm wondering if, if uh, you're seeing any kind of intersection of, of those right now. Yeah, I, I think, first of all, um, I am teaching a class myself at the undergraduate level called Grit Lab. And we'd say that, you know, an experiment is like, you know, if you actually look at the etymology, um, of these words, like to try, right? To try something. And I also used to teach positive psychology at the undergraduate level and, you know, hundreds of undergraduates and we went out and, you know, read about gratitude, but then we actually practiced gratitude, like let's all do the three blessings exercise for a week and see what happens. And I think this um, uh, idea that we could try things in our lives is very much um, consistent with the scientific method. I mean, what is it to say that something is scientific? It, it just means that there was a systematic approach to a question and there were uh, hypotheses that were advanced um, and then tested. And that's what people can do with their own lives, which is to sort of more systematically try to be a nicer person or a grittier person, and then to have hypotheses about what could help. Like maybe, maybe you know, thinking of three things that happened to me that I'm grateful for, maybe that'll work. And then you test that hypothesis, you gather data, you do it, and you observe whether that did or did not make you more grateful. You also observe whether you forget to do it. And that's also important data like, oh, it worked, except for I forgot to do it yesterday. Um, so that's interesting. And I, I generally think that the scientific method, um, which is something that has advanced 
you know, this is why people live nearly twice as long as they did 100 years ago. It's because of the scientific method. And we might actually make similar strides in character development and happiness and well-being and a more civic and just society if we apply that kind of experimental mindset to these other questions. Yeah, that's 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 kind of exciting. Uh, it, it, I get very excited because that certainly aligns with my own sort of personal philosophy of education, <laughs> where I'd like to see us go. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what's the next phase of of research in this area? Or maybe I can phrase it this way: What are the wicked problems that we've yet to solve? I think one of the real challenges is how to get um, you know these momentary advances that we sometimes make. You know, oh, I'm a little more grateful, or I'm a little happier, or you know, I have a little you know, a little more intellectual humility, you know, just then when you, when you, you know, challenged an opinion that I had, I wasn't entirely defensive, but how do we make those changes stick? And I think actually that is the heart of character is to, you know, make enduring improvements to our, um, to our habits and our beliefs. And that is, I think, a frontier that has not yet been um, crossed. You know, most scientists would say like they can change you for a second or a minute, but they don't really know how to help you change yourself for a year or a lifetime. And I think that's, um, that's the work that's to be done. And that's where I'm devoting a lot of my energy. Wow. That, that's significant. (laughs) Well, yeah, I won't be bored, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I won't call you back and say like, oh, I figured it out. You know, (laughs) we're done, Bernard. Like, you know, you don't have to have any more podcasts. Yeah. That might require a little grit. Um, <laughs> yeah, agreed, agreed. um, so maybe, maybe you just answered this, which is, that's maybe one of the unmet goals. Um, what keeps you motivated and inspired in this line of work? You know, I have, um, a top level goal that I have articulated. Um, it's everything I want to do professionally, and that is to use psychological science to help kids thrive. And to me, when I wake up in the morning and I think of the kind of, you know, the mundane things like, oh, I have to meet this person. I have to answer that phone call. I have to like look at this article. You know, what gives all of those tasks meaning and purpose to me is that they're all related to this top level goal. And and so, you know, when I wake up in the morning, it's, you know, I, I once, um, you know, thought of this. I said to my husband, I was like, you know, for me, it's like waking up on Christmas like every day because I'm so eager to like jump out of bed and um, run downstairs. And, you know, for me, I'm not opening presents. I'm like, you know, getting to these tasks. And I think that, you know, when people have work that is meaningful to them, where they can see the larger purpose, like it is, it is that kind of joy. And I think that's actually more than anything why I study grit, because I feel like having a passion, understanding you're serving, um, you know, other people through that passion you know, I think it drives so much of my own personal motivation. And I'm, you know, very lucky, um, blessed really to, to be in this situation. Well, I am grateful for your work. Your, your work, your writing, it, it goes in maybe a top 10 list for me of writers and thinkers. <laughs> so, uh, and, and you don't have to hear that from me. I'm sure you hear it from lots of people. But in the spirit of gratitude, I'm thankful for you and for the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you, Bernard. I love this conversation. I hope it's not our last one. <laughs> Great. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to bring you on again in a year and see the status of your work. That, that'd be a lot of fun. Sounds great. It's a date. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. 
Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.